Well, we're going to read from uh, Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. And I'll read the whole chapter. So remember that in the last chapter, um, Isaac had finally been born. And a few years have passed. He's now maybe a young teenager, um, young lad at this point, um, and um, we pick up the story in verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. So, Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for a burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son. And laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns, his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. He said, this day, on the night of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And your offspring shall, be, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. 
because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham turned to his young men, and they they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now after these things it was told told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah has also borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz, his firstborn, Buz, his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Hildash, Bidlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abram's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Rumah, bore Teba, Gaham, Tahash, and Makah. Let's pray for a moment, shall we? Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word again, uh, let us understand it. Help us, we pray. Give us illumination by your spirit. Lead us into all truth. For Jesus' sake. Amen. So, I don't know about you, but this story is one of the most disturbing stories I think you'll find in the Bible. Uh, Don't you think? Um, We could allegorize it and think, oh, it's an allegory of something. And we'll come to that in a minute. Um, But actually, it was a real story, a real event with real people. And uh, Abraham is being asked to sacrifice his son to stick the knife in (laughs) and kill his son. I mean, it's a shocking thing. And you may find the same, you know, as you read it. You might be thinking, well, why? Why would God do such a thing? Why, does, why would God give a command to, to Abram to kill his only son he's been waiting for for years, for decades? And now he's growing up, he's growing up and why, why is he doing it? Why does, another side of the question is, why is Abraham so compliant? Why, why does he just kind of go along with this? Why does he not argue with God or, or anything? Uh, he just seems to go along with it. It says the Lord will provide. Fascinating. Intriguing. But of course it's in asking those questions, those kinds of questions, that we find ourselves getting closer to understanding God's saving grace. When we ask those hard questions and we dig in and we wrestle with the scripture and we try and get, get to the root of what's going on. Uh, we've uh, been following Abraham. He's waited on God. Uh, he's heard all the promises that God has made. Um, and you may remember those promises. You know, he's been promised a land. And uh, he wanders through the land and he's, he gets to look around it and travel through it. But he doesn't own it yet. He doesn't have it. He doesn't possess it. And uh, he gets a prom- promises about offspring and nations coming from him uh, and so on. And remember, he wasn't able to have children with Sarah initially because uh, uh, God had closed her womb. She wasn't uh, able to have children. And there's the promise of being a blessing to the nations. All of these are in um, Genesis 12, 1 to 3. But a promise of being a blessing to the nations, not just to his own offspring, but those offspring uh, in the fullness of time and the fulfillment of all God's promises would be a blessing to all the nations. Uh, somehow. Uh, it's all very vague and general at this point. In the very beginning, in chapter 12. Those promises were, as we followed, we've seen this, the promises repeated with ever-increasing specificity. 
had to think about that there. Uh, increasingly specific promises about a son who's going to come and uh, when it's going to come, when he's going to come. And all of this is impossible, humanly speaking. And yet, in the fullness of time, exactly when God intended, Isaac is born. The promises are fulfilled. Or the, at least the beginnings of the promises are fulfilled. And that's, all that waiting seems to have come to an end for Abraham at least. At least he's got his son whom he loves. This longed for son that's come and now is growing up. And uh, we love our children as they grow up, don't we? Uh, we see them growing in, in ability and stature and taking responsibility and, and t- growing in gifts and abilities and all kinds of things. And we love all that. And, and Abraham's exactly the same as a, a doting father on his son. Uh, as he grows up. But then this amazing thing, uh, staggering, disturbing thing happens in chapter 22. God gives a command. And that's what I want to think about first of all, this command of God. God gives a command to Abraham. And he says in verse 2, take your son, your only son, so God knows how precious this son is to, to Abraham. Take your only son, Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. What a, what a staggering command to hear. God is asking him to kill his own beloved son. How can that be right? How can, how can God ask somebody to do that? seems to go against every principle of human It's shocking. Makes you a bit angry, perhaps. Why would he do that? And, you know, the law of Moses has not been written yet. It's not been given yet. And so you can't point to the commandment, you shall not kill. But everyone knew it to be wrong. If you look back in chapter, chapter 9 of Genesis... Does anybody looking at the Bibles? Chapter 9, verse 6. To Noah, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. God specifies the judgment on somebody who takes the life of an innocent person. Whoever sheds blood, blood shall be shed. So how can God do this? How can God seem to command against his own commands? Is God, after all, just like some other tribal deity? And there were many of them in the area all around. Is is he just like a capricious, random God who just decides to do things and it doesn't matter what it is because he said it, he's got to be done? Is that what he's like? And in other cultures, children were sacrificed. Well, of course, the answer to that is no. God doesn't go against his commands. But how are we to therefore understand this? How do we understand this? And I think there is a clue here in verse 1. Where God 
tests Abraham. God tests Abraham. And testing is something that God does with his people. He does with all his people. In all generations, at all times. Uh, Think of James. Uh, James. uh, Chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials or testings of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The testing that God puts his people through has a purpose. To produce steadfastness, to bring to perfection or maturity and completeness. And that's what James is saying. And this is how we need to see God's testing Abraham. That actually this is another step in the process that God is pursuing to bring maturity of faith and trust to Abraham. In some ways what God does to his people is no different from how we we raise our children. Don't you think? As they grow older... Uh, you'll give them more responsibility, won't you? Uh, You'll give them chores around the house. You'll give them jobs to do. Uh, You'll give them things to do. As they go to school and they learn things, they begin to to develop more skills and more abilities. And as they grow, they get more responsibility. And it's all part of the maturing process. And that's the way that our children, we raise our children so that they're ready to go out into the world. As mature young people to navigate the world as men, young men and young women. And in fact, as they grow, they will want more responsibility. Children want to do more things. They want to be more involved. They want to share in the lives of their parents. And the same is true in the spiritual life. Uh, in Genesis uh, Genesis 22 is just one more, in a sense, is one more example of it. The Lord is putting Abraham through a test for some greater long-term gain. But still, it's it's still a shocking command, though. It's hard to get away away from it. Is God actually inciting Abraham to sin? Well, the answer to that has to be no. Uh, James again. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So God is is not trying to lead Abraham into evil. He must have another purpose behind it. So God's ultimate intention is not to lead Abraham into sin. That becomes clear at the moment where Abraham is about to sink the knife in. Uh, the angel of the Lord appears and calls Abraham, Abraham, and stops him. So what's the goal? For Abraham, I think, first of all, I think there's this lesson, and it's this question. Are you willing to center all your hopes and all your desires on God? 
That's a question for us today. Are you willing to center all your hopes and all your desires on God? Are you willing to set aside all that God has given you simply to be able to do what God has commanded? Is the Lord the first, your first love and your first commitment in life? In front of your wife, in front of your children, in front of your job, in front of anything, is the Lord number one? I mean, just think about Abraham. He's, he's finally received what he has he's been longing for for years. And his son is growing up. He's a young man, maybe a young teenager, 13 or something like that. And, uh, and think of the relationship that's developed between father and son over those 13 years or so. But good though that relationship is, it must never take the place of Abraham's relationship to God and his obedience to God. And so God tests the professed faith of Abraham even further to show that he still has God as number one in his life. That's the most challenging thing for Christians. I, I think it's easy for us to profess Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Easy to say. To have the triune God as number one in your life. To say that. To say that that's true. When you have a whole lot of other things in your life also. When you've got your money. When you've got your career. When you've got your perfect family. I don't know. Nobody thinks they've got a perfect family. But maybe more perfect than anyone else's. But you've got all those things. And the question still is. Are you willing to submit to God everything that you have for him? And it's quite clear that I think the Lord is making this point here in verse 2. Take your son, your only son, that treasure possession. Give him up for me. Give him up for me. It's quite shocking, isn't it, parents? children to the Lord? How perplexing, how confusing. After all the promises that God has made, what on earth is God doing? Has he changed his mind? What's going on uh, in this situation? Well, God is testing Abraham. I think there's a lot we can learn about how God tests us with his commands and scripture and his instructions. Are you putting him number one in your life. Well, this test of Abraham brings out, as we'll see in a moment, two remarkable truths for Abraham and us to learn. Let's look now at how Abraham responds. And think about the obedience of faith. So in verse 3, Abraham arises early in the morning. And it's quite striking, isn't it? Early in the morning. You know, if it was you, would you want to get up in the morning? You just had this, this message, and then the next morning comes around. I mean, would you sleep? You'd probably be tossing and turning. And you might resist, and you might go slow. You know how children, when they don't want to do something, they go slow and 
they don't put their clothes on and they don't get ready and they just start messing about. <laughs> Do you think Abraham might have been a bit like that? Well, he isn't. Straight away, he's up in the morning. He's ready to go. And he's got this three-day journey ahead of him in verse 4. And uh, you get the impression, if you just read verses 3 and 4, that something is easy for him. I don't think so. I'm sure his heart was churning inside of him. All the way, all those three days. His heart churning and churning and churning. But he had learned to love God. He had learned to trust God. And so he went. So here he is, he's traveling with his, with his two servants. And I'm sure all through that he would be wrestling with God about what's been commanded as he takes every step towards Mount Moriah. The command of God, though, is more important to him than his perplexity. The command of God is more important to him than his perplexity. There's a lesson there for us, isn't there? confused about what God is doing in our lives, understand the tragedies maybe that come into our lives and the difficulties that we face, and yet the command is still there, and God is still calling us to put the command first, keep doing the things that really matter, keep doing the things that really matter, that he's told us. He doesn't make, Abraham doesn't make his own mind his own God, and start following his mind. And enter into a form of kind of intellectual idolatry. And say, well I don't understand this God. And therefore I'm just going to do what I want to do. No, his mind is churning and he doesn't understand any of it. But he knows the command of God. So he gets on with it. And he does it. And sometimes God calls us to be like that. To do the things and keep doing the things that matter. Even when your heart is breaking. Do the things that God calls you to do. Now one of the interesting things about the New Testament perspective on this story is something it says about Abraham. Hebrews chapter 11 uh, tells us something uh, fascinating. And that's the chapter, of course, uh, where that great list of uh, faithful men and women are, are listed. People had faith and how they trusted God through all kinds of difficulties. And uh, an extensive chunk of that is actually given to Abraham. And this episode in Genesis 22 figures in a couple of verses. uh, Because the writer to the Hebrews says this, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So, so just recounting the story there. Uh, the tension there between the promises that have been given and the thing that Abraham is being called to do. And then in verse 19, an explanation is given as to why we're through with this. Verse 19. He considered that God was able to raise him from the dead. From which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So we can put together a picture. 
Abraham trusting God, perplexed and worried and fearful and not sure what's going to happen. How's this going to resolve itself? And every step he's taking towards Mount Moriah for three days. And in that period of three days, he comes to the conclusion, God can raise the dead. Because God always keeps his promises. So how can he take my son away? God can raise the dead. Marvelous. How glorious. Now we're not told how the Hebrews, the writer to the Hebrews knew this. But God knew. God wrote it. God, by the Spirit, inspired that text. And it tells us this amazing thing, that right back in the earliest days of biblical history, people believed that God could raise the dead. In the times of Abraham, God is such a God that he can raise the dead. And indeed, he would have to, to fulfill all his promises, wouldn't he? There's going to be a glorious resurrection. But just imagine it. Abraham doing all that wrestling and then it dawning on him. This God raises the dead. And here's the important of Abraham in, re- in this real life situation has brought a deeper understanding of the amazing redemptive work of God. Isn't that how it happens? In our lives. You know, we can and we should read books about truth, the truth of the Bible. But sometimes it's only as we've lived a bit and experienced those occasions where our faith has really been tested, that real understanding comes. That the truth of God gets really embedded into our lives as we go through the trials. So it's more than just book knowledge, but an experience of life. God seems to build it into us, his great truth. But there's more, more than just uh, resurrection from the dead here. There's that little conversation that takes place between Isaac and his father. As they leave behind the two servants and climb the mountain, so there's just two of them climbing the mountain, they make burnt offering, which was to be an offering for sin. Uh, and uh, verse 7 Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father, here am I, my son. Behold, the fire and the woods, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? So Isaac is innocent in all of this. He doesn't know what's going on. He's just trusting his dad. Where's the burnt offering? Where's the offering going to come from? And Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Uh, I mean, imagine Abraham just having to say that. He's not lying there. But he's not being completely honest, completely open with the truth about what he's intending to do. The son is to be the sacrificial offering. So the preparations are made. The altar is built. Abraham then, I mean, just imagine this. Takes his 13-year-old son. Starts tying him up. After the wood has been put on the altar, so together they built the altar, they put the wood on, and then Abraham grabs his son and starts tying him up and lifting him up onto the altar. Do you think Isaac was happy about that? Maybe pretty upset, I would think. And Abraham's about to put the knife to kill his son. And it's at that point God intervenes. And so, verse 11. 
the angel of the Lord. That's the appearance of the Lord. Called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. And the command comes in verse 12 for Abraham to stay his hand because the test is complete. God knows that the fear of God and the Lord is more important to Abraham than anything, even than the life of his own son. And at the same time, providentially, so God in his providence manages all the things that happen, uh, there's, there's this ram stuck in a thicket over there, a bush over there. And it's got stuck in its horns. And amazingly, it's the Lord's provision. And he's able to sacrifice as this, this ram as a substitute for Isaac. Okay, what does this all teach us and Abraham? What are the lessons we learn from this obedience of faith? I think the first thing to say is, is perhaps the obvious one. That sin is serious enough to require a human death. God has authority, judicially, to require the life of any sinner. Sin does cost a life. When you sin, you deserve to die. And this is the significance of the altar being built. Uh, the altar is for sin. And the burnt offering is to, to show that sin has been consumed by God in his, in his justice. And the danger, of course, is that if, you, if as Abraham has been in the habit of sacrificing idols, then he might just think that an animal is sufficient for sins. But this whole episode is to show Abraham that the true price of our sin is our own death. We deserve to die. So that's the first thing. Uh, Sin is serious enough to require human death. Secondly, the Lord provides a substitute for human beings who are trusting the Lord. And that's the significance of the ram caught in in the thicket. That in the wise providence of God, he has provided the substitute for the sinner who should die. And so the ram dies instead. The substitute. And then the third thing to learn is that the pain that Abraham as a father, uh, the pain of Abraham as a father shows Abraham and us what it would mean to give up a son for sin. And of course, God the Father is going to do that, isn't he? God the Father is going to send a son. Only begotten son. Only beloved son. He is going to send his son into the world. To the altar, as it were. To the place of sacrifice. But this time... There is going to be no substitute for the Son of God. Because the Son of God himself has to experience the suffering and shame of death on the cross. That he is going to have to endure the Father, as it were. There's a modern hymn that says this. The Father turns his face away. 
in the experience of, of the Lord Jesus Christ in his, in his body, his human body, in his human nature, he experiences, as it were, God the Father closing the doors of heaven to him. And he is alone, utterly alone on the cross. That he must suffer and endure the shame for sins he did not commit. See, sin doesn't need an animal. And I think this is, this is learned here from Abraham. If anybody were to study Abraham in, in, in Moses' time, they would learn that animals will never take away sin. That they are merely representing a substitute who is to come. And therefore when Moses comes and he, he conveys the law of God and all the sacrificial system. Those with the eyes of faith who study the word of God. Understand God is signaling. In that the, the animals sacrificed are symbolic of a greater substitute yet to come. And such people would understand that they should be on the altar. But instead, God has provided an alternative, a substitute for them. The Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, I ask you this morning, do you know your sinners? I'm a sinner, are you a sinner? Do you know your sins have to be paid for before a holy God? And how will your sins be paid for? You see, either they'll be paid for, they'll be paid for by you as you come and face the judgments of our eternal God and you face eternal condemnation. Or you can receive and rest in the sacrifice of God's substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can have him if you but come to him. And I say that to children today. You can have him if you come to Jesus. And he will be yours. And you will be his. And he will save you forever if you come to him. Well, as we come to the close... We come to the last few verses. So I'm going to look at 15 to 19. Just briefly. We'll ignore 20 to 24. But after this episode, we see God once more repeating his promises. There is blessing for Abraham, verse 17. Multiplication of his offspring. That he'd be a blessing to the nations, verse 18. Just repeating those promises of, of chapter 12. And interestingly, that. All the offspring, here's an interesting addition, verse 17 at the end. Uh, and your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. The gates of his enemies. Nothing is, in, in the first instance, that's the, that's the reference to the people taking up possession of the land of Canaan. But as we've seen before, this. Everything has wider significance in the fullness of God's redemptive purposes. 
and the fulfillment of his promises. And the significance of that can only see its full and final uh, fulfillment in Jesus' words. Matthew 16, verse 18. I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Those gates. He says a victory at the gates of the enemy by the Lord Jesus Christ, an ultimate victory. And so, you see, once again, the, the scale of God's plans and purposes uh, are so far greater than the span of Abraham's life or ours. And God promises, God repeats his promises again. He promises by offering an oath. He says, by myself I have sworn. And there's no greater thing by which God can swear. Uh, he has to swear by, by his own name. And so you can be absolutely sure he's going to do it. And all because Abraham has not withheld his only son. In other words, his obedience has brought confirmation and reassurances of promises already made. Obedience brings confirmation and assurance of promises already made. It teaches us something very important about the Christian life. The obedience and assurance of salvation go together. Obedience and assurance go together. Someone comes to you or me and is lacking assurance in the faith and asking questions like, am I really a Christian? Does God really love me? Will God really save me? Um, one of the questions you need to ask about that person is, how are you obeying the Lord? If you have no assurance, are you actually obeying the Lord? Are you following the Lord? Are you being careful with his commandments? And it's no surprise that if somebody is lazy in obedience, sloppy in their service to the Lord, then they lack assurance. Assurance grows with obedience. Just as knowledge of God and his ways grows with obedience. Friends, may we all grow in maturity as we obey as Abraham did. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this picture. Uh, real events and yet symbolic of something future to come uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray you'd help us all to come to him, to recognize him as our, the one who has been our substitute, to put our faith in him and trust in him, and to follow him forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.